This is the Commercial Property Show Australia, show number 24. I was the first person to buy a piece of airspace in Auckland, so I bought the airspace over a car park called the Berriton Street Car Park off the Auckland City Council. So that was probably my claim to fame in the country. Got myself in the newspapers and became famous overnight because no one had ever thought about doing something like that. Hey, commercial property community, or CP community for short. My name is Andrew Bean. I am the host of the Commercial Property Show Australia. Welcome back to episode two in 2021. And here it is. Simon Peters from 360 Collective joins me on the show today to talk about how he and his team successfully set up a syndicate in 2020. He has an absolute huge wealth of knowledge, over 30 years of development experience. A very, very interesting man. I learned a lot from this interview. If you notice that the audio changes, we got cut off halfway, so the audio does change a little bit, the sound quality, but it's a really great interview and I know you guys are going to learn a lot from it just like I did. And here it is. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. Go to www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum. And together, we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My next guest is the founder and CEO of 360 Collective. It's Mr. Simon Peters. How are you, mate? Very good. How are you doing, Andrew? Oh, I'm excellent, buddy. Thanks for being on the show. Can oh, you just reason. give the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background in property development? Yeah, I'll try and keep it short. I've done 30 years of it. I've had an illustrious career in property in two countries. So started out in construction when I was in my teens, actually, working for a building business in the commercial sector in New Zealand, in Auckland. And from there, progressed into managing sites and what have you. Probably did about five years of that sort of work, mostly commercial and civil work. And eventually wanted to get my own sort of thing going. And I was always keen on property. Coming from a farming background, real estate and land was what my whole life had been about. And I just love the creativity that you could bring to uh, property. So I was very excited about being creative about how you could take a site or building and innovate with it and how you could be creative and how you did the acquisition work. And that those two things sort of got me very interested in property. And I love design. I'm interested in design. So pretty much that got me interested. And then from there, I started my own business in Auckland, just buying houses that had maybe a little bit of land at the back. So you'd call them a, not a splitter, but a small lot subdivision. 
So I started doing small lot subdivision work in Auckland at the very low end of the market. Back in those days, you could buy houses for 100000 you know, so not like a million dollars today. And just really progressed my knowledge base on the North Shore of Auckland, then moved into the city and did a small townhouse project. That was my first foray. Lost a heap of money. Lost about half a million dollars in my first townhouse project. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at that stage, I was very hands-on. So I'd been designing my own little plans and working on site with the surveyors and walking around with a survey pole and taking the plans to the council myself and dealing with the town planners and the engineers. Because in those days, most people didn't bother having a town planning consultant. You really didn't bother with many of those sort of consultants that you have today. And it was good in a lot of ways because you really just dealt with the council offices yourself. And I learned a lot by doing that. And then, but eventually I, I was the first person to buy a piece of airspace in Auckland. So I bought the airspace over a car park called the Beresford Street Car Park off the Auckland City Council. So that was probably my claim to fame in the country. Got myself in the newspapers and became famous overnight because no one had ever thought about doing something like that. And I built a 42 apartment project on top of the car park. And long story short, there was quite a lot of technical issues that needed to be dealt with because of the earthquake codes of the old building. And we ended up building about five or six stories of it in timber. So it was built like a boat and actually very, very safe for any concrete building that would have been built on that site. Yeah, won an Australasian Design Award. And I suppose that was the innovative side of me coming out. That's the stuff I love. And yes, I did numerous projects in that space. And I got into some industrial, owned industrial real estate there. We bought a a high rise in the city, refurbished it and then strata titled it. So quite varied, owned 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 an inner city car park. So we had a car park building and learn about car parks and they, they're good assets. Yeah, I bought a few commercial properties, owned an old theatre, owned the oldest theatre in New Zealand for a while, a, a Lyric Theatre, and ran that for a few years as well. So just a lot of variety in the property space, I'd say. And then in 2001, came to Australia. And at that stage, my life had changed quite a lot. I had two kids by myself. I'd uh, ended up single parent. Came over here and I was always keen on being in Australia because I felt it was a bigger market. There was more opportunities. It was interesting and different. And really just kicked off working for a New Zealand company here, looking for a, a property opportunity. And I bought an amazing site in Cairns as my first project. And it was called False Cape. So it was a peninsula, two kilometres of waterfront, 300 acres of rainforest. And we put together a 1,500-person resort facility with a hotel development to go in there. And then I sold that company to an Australian gentleman and became his general manager of that business for two or three years while we progressed the DA. Wow. Which was incredibly tricky. I mean, we dealt with every level of Australian government you could deal with. And New Zealand, you deal with the council and occasionally the government. But over here, it was federal, local, state. And of course, about, I think we had 74 agencies we had to deal with. Agencies I've never heard of that were agencies or something to do with the project. So we, uh, and the EPA, of course, which were very difficult. Imagine putting a resort on a, like on a peninsula with 300 acres of rainforest, two kilometres of Great Barrier. <laughs> Marine frontage and Ken's Harbour Board Authority with dugongs floating around in the water out there. <laughs> yeah. All right, mate. So I want to go back to the airspace. How do you find comparables to figure out how much the airspace above a car park is worth? Well, I'd say you sound like a valuer because every valuer in the city <laughs> rang me up and said, How did you value that? <laughs> and you know what? To be absolutely frank, I suppose I knew what a unit site was worth if you bought it on the ground and I discounted the hell out of it. And if I bought it for that price, I could just about do nothing and I'm probably not going to lose too much. To be honest, there was no real metrics that I could compare with because there was no comparisons. I basically set the benchmark when I bought that property. I mean, back then we paid 
$300,000 for the air rights, and it was 1991, I think. I was 30 years old. I'm a bit old now. And over 42 apartments, whatever that is. It was also the first new build that had been done in the city for about 50 years. Wow. The inner city market in Auckland at that place, that time, it started to regenerate and it was getting quite exciting. And I was involved in buying old warehouses and refurbishing them. And I was working with a, a handful of developers in the city doing our own thing. But we all compared notes and looked at each other's projects and got excited. And some of them were doing historical buildings, which I loved. And then, yeah, this site came up and it was the first one to be built in 50 years. So it was pretty big news. But, mate, answer to your question, there was no way to compare it. Really. <laughs> so I'm guessing that you actually just, you obviously built on top of the car park. So it was probably just, it was car parks above on the top and you actually put a building there. Is that correct? Correct. And we also kept the car park. So the city council retained ownership of the building. We only got rights to the airspace. So they still ran a public car park underneath our building. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's very innovative. I'll give you something else that you'd love, or your listeners would love. This is even more innovative. You can't do it anymore. But back then, we were able to do what in New Zealand, you can do this FDUs, which is Future Development Unit in a strata title. So we did that, and you were able to actually sell them and mortgage them. So we actually sold FDU titles to the owners that bought the apartments and then a building contract. So back in those days, I think the deal was about maybe, say, $15 million cost or something like that right and we borrowed 1.5 million from the ANZ bank to do the whole project and we got the investors to buy the unit titles off us and then fund the development and the construction contract and that had never been done before either so there was a lot of innovation in that project well that's so cool so just going off script here between commercial and residential what are the differences between developing the different sectors are there many is it very very different Look, in essence, in terms of planning controls and dealing with consultants and, I suppose, knowing the rigours of how to do a project or undertaking a project, they're not different. I'd say, to be honest, industrial is probably the most simplest out of them all. Okay. Because industrial, it's land and some concrete and some tin. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, very, very simple. When you're dealing with residential, there's a lot more complexity. You know, you've got a lot of services, kitchens, bathrooms, fittings, joinery, internal wall linings, fabrics. There's just so much more to it, flooring, and it's just the complexity is quite different. Industrial is very, very simple. It seems like comparison between residential and commercial for me doing planning is just the complexity of the, especially in New South Wales, the planning for residential is so much like more strict around than the commercial in New South Wales. Is that Would you say that's correct? Well, I'd say it's highly likely. I don't actually develop in New South Wales. I've developed mainly in Queensland. Well, mostly we run a consulting business, but... I'd have no problem doing it down there. And I've looked at projects and actually done some acquisition work down there and in Melbourne. Yes, and if you think about why, at the end of the day, Andrew, councils are voted in by voters, right? People that live in their precincts. And those people are mostly concerned about where they live and who's doing what around their house. Mm. They don't really care less about what goes on in an industrial centre because they don't live there. The council cares about making sure there's parking requirements so that you haven't got a street full of car parks and cars everywhere. They need to know that big trucks and containers can move freely in and out and services, you know, uh, essential services can get in and out. That's their main concern. And, of course, most of those industrial parks historically haven't been at high levels because you can't build where where you didn't build warehouses and put multi-level warehouses on a site. So, you know, the constraints on those sites, a little bit of landscaping so they don't look like a big, ugly concrete backyard forever. The planning controls don't really need to be as stringent. Definitely true. 
All right, mate. So recently you put together a really interesting private syndication deal, and we're going to do a deep dive into that project. So what type of property is it? Well, it's traditionally an industrial property, 40 years old, so it's a refurb in an existing precinct. But what type of property? It's industrial showroom property. Okay, perfect. So where is the property and how did you find it? Okay, it's in Bundle and the Gold Coast, close to Harvey Norman within probably half a cage, not even less. Harvey Norman's obviously a, a bulky retail type precinct. And this location is becoming more that use as opposed to industrial. Traditionally, it was like yeah, mechanics and people like that and their woodwork manufacturers and whatever, kitchen manufacturers. But that's changed because the values and the rates have gone up, the rent rates have gone up. It's now more attractive to the sort of second tier showroom space. How did I find it? Look, I've got a couple of contacts that I'll ring every now and again. And if I'm interested in finding something, I usually do the call around. And I was talking with someone in our team and said, look, let's do a syndicate and let's get something going. You've got a whole lot of investors that want to do something. We'll go find something. And I literally made one phone call in 10 minutes. I had the property. <laughs> I know that sounds amazing, but sometimes when you're in the right place at the right time with the right mindset, you find what you want. And I've always believed in that in my business. So I've never had a doubt I could find what I wanted if I wanted something. It just comes to you. Yeah, that's great. Mate, so was the property vacant or tenanted? A bit of both. So it's got, it's actually, we're stridering it. So the, the deal is a strider deal. I won't go into detail yet, but essentially out of five units in there, one, two, three of them are tenanted. But two of those tenants are on a month to month and one's got another year or so on the lease. So you had some holding income while you were actually going to refurbish it? Yeah, we're still in the deal. So at the moment, that's exactly the position. It was a bit fortunate too, because the lady that we bought it off had a marriage breakup and all that stuff. And and I think she just, they'd owned a lot of industrial real estate around the coast. And I think she was just over it. She just wanted to get in a camper van and go on a holiday for 12 months. So she taken the property from where it was when before we saw it and taken and stripped out a lot of the internal fittings because it was quite messy inside. There was multiple tenancies. She got mm -hmm. rid of them all, cleaned it all up, painted everything internally painted everything externally, did like 90% of the renovation work that we had to do, and then we ended up buying it. So when it came to us, we didn't have to do very much. We did a bit of landscaping, fixed the signage, cleaned up the driveways, bit of touch-up here and there, putting some nice numbering on it, fixed up the rubbish bin areas out the front, trimmed up the hedges and prettied it up a bit more. And really, that was all the construction work we had to do. So what I really, to move on to why I liked the project and why I found it and decided to go for it, it makes a development margin without doing the development. Yeah, that's right. All right, mate. So how did you secure the property or the syndicate? Well, normally I'd go along and put an option agreement because of potential double stamp duty issues and what have you. And we didn't have an entity set up to buy it. So we put it in one of our own shelf companies under an agreement. We went through a fairly short due diligence period. Normally we go for longer, but it was only, well, three weeks. We negotiated an extra week and got a month. By the time we went unconditional, we rescinded the contracts, so and then obviously had a new entity formed that it went into. Okay. Yeah. So how much was the property, and how did you initially fund it? Well, initially it was a $10,000 holding deposit, which we put down on signing the contract. The contract price was $2.25 and we went out and did a – we brought an IM, um, and we basically went out to a bunch of investors that were keen to get involved in the space from our database, and we raised capital. And then at the same time, we also raised 55% of the debt and the balance was raised through equity. Obviously, we projected costs and other bits and pieces. And there's a cost of raising capital. There's a cost of acquisition, cost of due diligence, cost of holding, cost of interest, structuring the finance. So there are costs. And we raised enough money to cover all those costs and a little bit more. 
a bit of contingency, and then the rest in debt. And then we settled it pretty much a month after we went unconditional. Can you just explain what you mean by you also raise the debt? Well, when I say raise the debt, we went to debt providers and secured the debt. It's probably a better word. Okay, perfect. Mate, yeah. So you said that you found the investors in your database. Was that an easy process to approach them and get them to invest? Did you have to go elsewhere as well? One of our team have a commercial property business, Mish Daniel Commercial, and she's got quite a few thousand people in her database that were looking to get involved in property. A lot of people from the database, in fact, 99% of the database are smaller investors. There are some larger ones as well, and they're all interested in buying and getting involved in commercial property ownership. But the reality is it's very risky trying to buy commercial property when you've only got a small sum of money. You can't really get into the right space. You end up with low-quality stuff. And if you haven't really done it and you don't really know what you're doing, it's really risky. So a lot of these investors wanted to be involved, but what we found was that they weren't really able to get across the line and overcome the fear of buying something, and they didn't have the knowledge they needed to get involved. So we basically put together an education package so that they could learn about how it's done by being involved and at the same time. I suppose at the end of the day, put some money down, don't risk your house, and be involved in the process and meet the We run regular webinars and information flow goes back to the investors constantly. So they see what we're doing. It's really basically hands-on. I like to describe it, Andrew, as being the hands on the hands that moulding the clay. That's how I would would describe it. You know, so instead of being actually the person moulding the clay, you put your hands around the hands that are moulding the clay and you get a feel for what it's like being involved in a deal by investing in and the communication that we keep up so that you're learning. And you get some key people in the team, the consulting team, the finance brokers, insurance brokers, and every bit of it, you get to learn about it by actually hearing from them directly. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like it was very, very organized from the outset. Well, it was a strategy to, I could see the problem for everyone. I've been in the same boat when I was younger. It's scary. You're going to go and buy a property. You've never done it before. It's all your money. And you're in the bottom end of the market. What we did say to people is that the further up the food chain you can get, the high quality assets you can end up buying. And I think that's really important. So in fact, even though you're spending more money or buying a larger lump of real estate, your risk profile actually reduces. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, what was the equity split and the return promised to the investors? Well, everything's projected. Nothing's a reality until you put it in the bank. And we're very clear with everyone about that because I don't think you should ever promise stuff that hasn't actually happened. But obviously, we've got to give people projections and we've done that. We gave them a breakdown of the feasibility and everything. So, they know where all the money's going. We've explained it carefully to everybody. But the projected return on invested capital over 12 months is over 30%. Per investor? Yes, 30%. So I think we raised 1.3 mil and there's 30% return on that money. Wow. Is the deal a hold for a long term for a cash flow play or was it just a flip? It's a flip. A syndicate would be formed for a buy and hold kind of play. Is this kind of a different model that you put together? Well, it's, it's more a development syndicate. So there are two types of syndicates. Some are for what you just described, buy and hold play. And we'll be doing those as well. We've got a couple of properties lined up for that. And the sort of stuff we love actually is got decent cash flow but and buy at the right price and then add value by increasing the cash flow and improving the tenant mix and leasing periods and that sort of thing, which is we're going to do a lot of that this coming year. And I think there's great opportunity for that, by the way. But this one was a development syndicate. So we really were just focused on in and out as quickly as we can. I mean, if all things went really well, we could be out in six months and the investors have got a, a return on invested capital in six months of that 30%, which would be amazing. 
but I've obviously we want to be conceived of and given ourselves 12. Yeah, definitely. So, mate, how much did the revitalization cost? Not a heck of a lot. All cost over and above the purchase. If you took acquisition fees and revitalization, interest costs and all that, probably around about 300000 Okay. It's pretty reasonable. Yeah, that includes the cost of raising capital. We, when we raise capital, we charge for that. I mean, you've got to because you've got to go out and do quite a lot of work to get that together. You've got to pay for an IM. You've got to pay for all the legal structures. There's quite a lot of money spent on putting the trust together and getting advice from all the appropriate parties, accountants and lawyers and all the good people that we have to deal with in this business. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, mate, does that include the cost for the strata subdivision? And how yep. much did that cost on its no, own? No, it includes the cost. The strata's, the actual surveying is only like 6500 but we've got to get this because it's quite old. The council don't really have any plans of the mezzanine floors that were built, so we've got to get a building design drawing done for that, and we've got to get a certified to certify that. All up, you might be fifteen thousand dollars worth of costs in there. Sometimes on the building, not on this one, you've got to deal with fire rating. We've got a budget on allowing for those things, and you've got to sometimes get consultant reports for that. But I suppose I've got a fair bit of experience doing this. I've done a lot of strata type work over the years in residential, commercial, and retail. Okay. So how many units were you able to start a title? Well, five. There was five existing units there already. They've got solid core filled block work and there's five. So we're straddling what's there. I mean, we could have done more, but again, you start spending more money and getting more involved in the development construction side of it. Then you've got more time in your hands, more capital required. And the return on investment wasn't as good as just basically doing the simplest deal and strata titling and flipping it. Yeah. Okay. So has each property already been sold or are they for sale right now? They've just hit the market a week and a half ago. So we've had quite a few buyers already and we've already had buyers talking about when they want to move in and all that sort of stuff, but nothing's done until it's on paper. So at this stage, there's no sale contracts. If I was to talk a bit more about the risk around it, the two areas of risk were getting a strata title approval. Looks like we've got that one sorted and sales risk. So it's currently in the sales risk side of the project. So being that it's a commercial property, would you not want to get it tenanted before you sold it? Well, we're doing both. It's a good question. So it's for sale and for lease. If someone comes along and says, I want to lease it and they pay the right amount, then we'll sell it as an investment. Or we could go back to the investors and say, do you guys want to keep it? Okay. Because obviously when you have income coming in from it, it's going to create a higher value of the property. Would that have to change the suggested purchase range? No, not necessarily, because what we've done, it'll just change the buyer profile because we've structured the purchase or the value, if you like, to the market based on as if it, as if it was leased. We've looked at it two ways. One is like leased up XYZ, capitalised at XYZ, it's worth this much. However, there's a strong market for owner-occupiers obviously emerging and more than emerging, it's starting to really come on stream. Because if you're leasing a bit of real estate for your business, you're effectively paying, say, a 7% yield to the owner. Mm-hmm. And you can go borrow your money. In fact, you can even get money under 2% for some of this stuff if you did it in your own name. It's a lot cheaper to actually own your real estate. And if you do it in your self-managed super fund, which people are doing, and business owners generally do have those, you're going to borrow money at about 5.5%. That's still better than paying rent to somebody else. You control your own risk profile. You put your money out of your self-managed super fund into it and own it, and you've got a long-term investment to retire on. So it's an absolute no-brainer in today's world to go and buy that type of asset for your business. It's an amazing time for business owners to own real estate like this. Yeah, it definitely makes sense from a business perspective. So that's our market. That, so we've positioned it. You can expect to get a higher effective cap rate selling it to an owner-occupier. They will pay a premium. 
rather than leasing, it's still worth them paying a premium on the property to buy it outright. Yeah. So you actually got a designer to really have a good look at this project, didn't you? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a strategy, okay? So something I've done a lot of over the years, mainly in New Zealand, was refurbing old warehouses and stuff. And it's creative and it's fun and I love doing it. But I figured that in this space, see in Bundle, it's a very small, tightly held suburb. And it's in an area of the Gold Coast, virtually the center of the Gold Coast, which is actually quite valuable for, say, distribution centers if you were one around the Gold Coast. But a lot of the real estate in that area is, you know, waterfront type stuff. It's very, very high value. A recent sale three weeks ago was the highest on the Gold Coast, I think, ever for $27 million. I figured those sort of people might have a business. They might even just have some nice cars they want to store and they can't store it at their house because they've got small properties right on the water and they might have a car collection Plenty of people are like that, with nice boats. Where do you put it? So you can have your own warehouse. You can have your own sort of space where you can run a little office out of there. So we've got Amy Diggenhart over here. She's a fantastic architect, award-winning architect. And she got here to do a design of an accommodation, office storage warehouse, sort of funky sort of space. And I did that because I wanted to open it up to that other market that most people aren't really aiming commercial property at. I feel there's a real opportunity in that market. And we want to break that ground and we want to do more of that type of real estate development. So we engaged Amy to do those designs and they look really cool. And as it turns out, the people that are building a webpage for us, they've done exactly what we're pitching it at. And they've bought a warehouse in Burley and they did exactly the same thing. They run their whole organisation out of there. And I've seen the numbers and it looks just like ours. And it's just in a bunch of old warehouses, but you go inside and it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And if you ran a little office and you wanted a bit of creativity around you, that's the sort of space. So that was the market. People that want to run their own little business, people that have got a nice home close by that want to store or want to run a business out of, they want to work from home, but they want to be close. That's the market that we were pitching that at. So we did that design to show what could be done. And if someone comes along and says, hey, we love it, we want you to do it, we'll build that design for them. Or we can say, well, take the, take the plans, talk to Amy, do it yourself, just buy the warehouse. I actually saw a picture of the, the property today and it looks absolutely amazing from the outside. I can only imagine what it looks like on the inside. Well, I'm personally hoping someone come along and say, can you do it for us? Because I'd actually love to do it. It cost about, to do that, it cost about 250000 maybe three hundred. Okay. So what was the cash on cash return for the investors? Well, that's, that's what I was saying before. It's pretty much what I said, 30%. Oh, okay. Projected. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. So what was the projected internal rate of return and did you achieve it? Well, we haven't achieved it yet. The re- internal rate of return... Well, you actually really haven't sold it, yet. so you don't know yet. No, but and it's more relevant to a property projected? that you're going to hold over a long period of time, Andrew. So for a development property, it's not really relevant under 12 months. But you could still factor it in, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, and, and it'll be about 30%. Okay. Excellent, mate. So what does the next deal look like for you? And and are you going to stick with a syndicate model? Okay, well, we've got probably two or three deals in the pipeline. One's a small neighbourhood shopping centre. I'm very excited about it. If we can get that one at the right price, which we made an offer on, that'll be the next deal. It's retail. Obviously, it's been hammered by COVID because of that. Quite often, a lot of these properties have, I suppose, inexperienced owners. So in the good times when they're all leased up and all that sort of stuff, no problem. But when the proverbial hits the fan, they lose tenants and things go wrong. They haven't looked after their tenants properly. They all leave. And that's what this property is showing. That's our expertise. So we would love to drop by that property. And then, yes, that will be a syndicate model. Same thing again. We probably want to raise, I'd guess, a similar amount of money, one to one and a half million on that one. 
And then another one we've got a good chance of winning is actually right up in Darwin, and it's a commercial property. It'll be a brand new build and hold. We're probably looking at holding that five to seven years in a fund. Again, a syndicate. And that'll be a childcare. There'll be a drive-through coffee and some offices, but it's in a prime location next to medical. And we've got a bid in on that one now, and we've probably got a good chance of winning it. And then thirdly, we're going to build a fund and we're going to be buying and holding NDIS properties. And we've got a strategy to roll that out. So that'll be doing land acquisition, building houses, building NDIS, and then holding them. And then, yeah, we've got an extra strategy that we think will work for that. But we'll build quite a large fund. That'll be a registered prospectus and it'll be a retail fund. So next year is looking pretty exciting and I can only see it getting better because there are a lot of people out there who really don't know how to manage their assets very well, and especially in tough times. But that'll be a public fund, will it? That'll be a public fund. A retail fund under a prospectus will be public so we can advertise. Now, a short message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, we are always searching for property with development potential. If it's time to sell and you own a commercial or residential property anywhere in Australia that you think has development potential, we want to know about it. We might be able to pay above market prices. You can contact us through our website at www.developalife.com.au or call us on 0410-694-694. 633. Now back to the show. All right, mate. So I wanted to ask you about possibly setting up a syndicate in a different sort of way, kind of bringing in the investors uh, later on in the piece. So say the, the actual developer or the investor that's putting together the syndicate, they'll purchase the property. It could be vacant and they'll redo it with their own cash. They'll re-tenant it and then they'll bring investors in later on to own part of the unit trust. Do you think that would work in a model where you're refinancing money out, you're still taking a piece of the deal, but you're just kind of recycling your cash to get the money out so you can go on and get another deal? Oh, absolutely. You know, that's, that's not uncommon either. The one in Darwin that we're looking at, for example, we're going to be talking to our advisors with, how do we structure that? Because there's tax issues to be dealt with as well. So when you're doing a a development project and then you're moving it into an investment strategy, you may have to do it that way. Uh, and obviously, the risk profile is quite different. So the returns to the investors are going to be different. So the development oriented people will be higher risk, higher return. And then other people will be more satisfied just having an investment that's nice and safe and secure for you know 10 years or whatever. Uh, in this case, we're looking at five to seven. And of course, a different rate of return, but absolutely different appetite for a risk, different appetite for returns. So yeah, that is an appropriate method and it's not uncommon. Yeah, beautiful, because I definitely want to set something like that up in future. Yeah, I mean, we'll be doing that sort of thing, and it could be in this project if that's the advice that we get, and I'm suspecting it will be. I mean, you can add value. I know Stockton's, for example, are partly a developer and partly an investment firm, and obviously if you can pick up the development uplift and go into a syndicated development that then holds it, and that's tax effective, that's pretty much an ultimate scenario, really, especially if you've got it in a commercial asset where it's pre-tenanted before you start. Because then really your only risk is the construction side of it. And, you know, you, there's plenty of ways to deal with that risk and mitigate it. Yeah, I also like the partially tenanted property where it's covering your costs. You're just breaking even and then mm. you've paid for it using the, the income on the partial tenancy. And then you basically just have to get a new tenant to get that uplift of value. 
Well, the shopping centre we're looking at, the neighbourhood shopping centre, is exactly that sort of asset, and I really love those properties. You know, at the end of the day, everything you do with money is all about risk and reward, and we're we're exactly, after 30 years of development, uh, I don't really want to be a developer as such anymore, but adding value to assets, I call that active investment, what you just described, and it's exactly the sort of asset we want to buy, really, and that shopping centre we've got is an absolute cracker if we can get it, because, you know, typical scenarios, as I said before, Owners haven't looked after it, don't know what they're doing, lost some of the tenants, but it's in a good spot. It's got some really good qualities about it. It's got existing revenue. We're buying it on the existing revenue streams with all the upside. Yeah, beautiful. So will you bring an anchor supermarket tenant in there? It's already got a a supermarket type tenant, not a major one. And I say it's a neighbourhood shopping. It's more like an RGA type uh, tenant. Yep, that is effectively the anchor. But there's also opportunity in, again, gentrification that's going on around a lot of the suburbs all over Australia. But in this particular location, there's quite a lot of opportunity for, especially after COVID too, drive-through fast food type scenarios. And this property suits that. And we'll be investigating maybe changing the dynamics of how the centre is uh, structured in terms of its tenancy and its use, as well as uh, tenanting the existing buildings that are there anyway. It sounds like you've got a lot of interesting things on the horizon. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you and your company? Okay, we actually got a new website being launched on Monday, so good timing. It's a simple site. It's www.360collective. That's 360collective.com.au. Perfect, mate. My guest today has been Simon Peters from 360 Collective. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, everybody. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So this week's Ripper resource is The ABCs of Real Estate Investing by Ken McElroy. Now, Ken McElroy is a Rich Dad advisor. He is involved with the Rich Dad community, Rich Dad Poor Dad, obviously Robert Kiyosaki. He actually does a lot of deals with Robert and Kim as well. It's a really good book. It is American, but a lot of the things actually translate into commercial property investing for cash flow. So it's really, really good book. I've listened to it quite a few times now and it really helped me out just thinking differently and just investing for cash flow in general. So it's this week's Ripper Resource, The ABCs of Real Estate Investing by Ken McElroy. You know what that music means. That means we've come to the end of another great show. Don't worry, we'll be back in two weeks. I want to thank my guest, Simon Peters. Thank you, mate, for being on the show. It was very, very fun. Don't forget to check out their website. That's 360collective.com.au. Tell them we sent you. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, you have to develop yourself first before you can develop something else. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Develop a Life production.